Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I know I say this every week, but I'm glad you're with me. And you know what? Every week I'm absolutely sincere. I am glad. But I bet you will be too, given I'm going to get joined by one of our favorites, James Thorne, who wasn't surprised by the downturn, especially the major repricing in the tech sector. But this is, you know, what have you done for me lately business? So I want to know what Jim thinks is coming next. Also, as anyone knows who's been shopping around for a mortgage, that qualifying stress test rate has gone up to above 6%. Well, Ozzy says he has a little-known trick to drop the qualifying rate by as much as a full percent. I'm also going to be talking about the most searched economic and financial term on Google in the last month, a couple of months, actually. Plus, in my shocking stat, I got a story about the outrageous audit and results of Black Lives Matter. Now, it looks like a lot of people didn't care, but I'm sure you will. And of course, I've got a goofy award that begs the question, how are you going to feel when gasoline hits two fifty dollars or $3 a litre, or higher maybe, because some politicians seem to be working very hard to make sure it gets there. But first, as the world's political and business elites gather in Davos for the World Economic Forum, hosted by Klaus Schwab, I'm reminded of the observation by Nazim Tlaib. He's the author of best-selling books that may be recognized like The Black Swan and Fooled by Ramdenmiss. In quotes, what we've been seeing worldwide from India to the UK to the US is a rebellion against the inner circle of no skin in the game policy making clerks and journalist insiders. That class of paternalistic semi-intellectual experts with some Ivy League or Oxford Cambridge or some similar label driven education who are telling the rest of us what to do, what to eat, how to speak, how to think, who to vote for. But the problem is the one-eyed following the blind. These self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut on Coconut Island. I think that's a terrific description. I can't think of a group that's been more wrong when it comes to major political, financial, economic issues of our time. I mean, they've got nothing right. I mean, whether we're talking about the Brexit vote or the election of Donald Trump in 2016, major events that they didn't even have an inkling were about to happen. And you know what? P.S. We clearly predicted both on Money Talks. For a group that wants to rule the world, though, I am impressed by their ability to ignore their own failure to anticipate or forecast what I think are the most important financial and economic issue in generations. doesn't seem to bother them a bit. Now, you'll have to forgive me, but I work in the world of finance, economics, investments, where it's results that count, not hyperbole and certainly not virtue signaling. It's a world of measurement and accountability. And track record counts above all else. That's very different from the world of politics, where politicians seem to work hard not to be held accountable for the results of their policies. You know, I get a chuckle every time I hear President Joe Biden blaming basically everything under the sun for the massive inflation, with the exception, of course, of government policies, which flooded the U.S. economy with $5 trillion, while the Federal Reserve manipulated interest rates to record lows. I mean, every month the president named a different inflation villain. Back to supply chains or Putin or corporate greed, oil prices. And this month's puzzler, inflation is caused by companies not paying their fair share of taxes. I mean, no mention of the government, the president, Federal Reserve, ignoring every warning sign for a year and instead said, oh, no, don't worry, inflation's transitory. Of course, the president has a lot of company in failing to recognize the biggest threat to our standard of living in over a generation, runaway inflation, and of course is crushing the most vulnerable. 
Now, I also think it's probably difficult for the elites in Davos, including Canada's own members of the World Economic Forum Board of Trustees. We've got Finance uh, Minister Christia Freeland and former Governor of the Bank of Canada and Greta Thunberg fan Mark Carney, along with the Prime Minister. I mean, it's tough because they don't know any low-income families or individuals. Because the same thing happened with the CAP26 policies in November. It was breathtakingly insensitive to the challenge and living standards of people in emerging markets like India, which is why Prime Minister Modi told them to take a hike unless they wanted to fork over a trillion dollars. But what's different now from the usual political BS is that the cost of their policy prescriptions and attitudes is so recognizable. I mean, as we cope with record gasoline, diesel, propane, jet fuel prices, because we don't have the refining capacity, as I said, get ready for significantly higher gasoline. What's scary, though, is despite the lower demand for crude, because we've got the Chinese lockdowns, and we've had this extra supply release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I mean, we're still looking right now at, what, $110 oil? Wait till China comes back on the online, along with the upward pressures from gasoline during the summer driving season that officially kicks off this weekend. And once again, it's the poor who pay the steepest price. Come on, nobody attending Davos can't afford a 50% jump in gas prices. You know, just like they can afford the increase in food prices, which are the result of the massive increase in diesel and fertilizer prices, along with higher corn and wheat prices due to the sanctions surrounding Ukraine. While we're talking about the inevitability, by the way, of a food crisis, we were talking about that nine months ago on Money Talks. Not a single politician gave any inkling they understood the relationship of natural gas with fertilizer or with escalating cost of diesel for farmers, which guarantee higher food prices. Anything but transitory. Now, look, I can go on with other examples, but my point is simply to reflect my own astonishment that a group with such a breathtakingly bad record of understanding and forecasting major economic and financial events, the major ones in generations, think that they can, in quotes, manage the economy. Their agenda of Build Back Better is well spelled out. More government and economy along with higher taxes. We're already seeing it with promises of more to come. The goal, as the Prime Minister put it, is to reimagine capitalism, with them in charge, of course. But given their track record, that prospect should scare the heck out of us, especially if we really do care about our children. I want to go to Mike Levy right now and find out what's trending, especially in his life. Uh, and he promised me earlier this week that he's got a word that maybe we haven't looked at in decades, but it's the most prominent searched word on Google. It is, Mike, and it's uh, being searched more than any time since the 1980s. And a lot of uh, our audience, a lot of the millennials would never have heard of the word when you're talking about investing and uh, the, the, the current climate. And the word is, is stagflation. We've got this cost of living challenge that I don't think is going away, but we're starting to talk about a weaker econom uh, economic growth si situation. So you've got higher rate of increase in your costs, but the economy is slowing. Now, normally, if you go over time, people would think, hey, you've got a weak economy. That'll slow down demand for goods and services. That will reduce you know, inflation. In this case, you've got an awful lot of analysts worried that won't be the case. Oil prices are going to stay up. Food prices are going to stay up. Oh, my goodness. So we have a slowing economy, 
and rising prices, hence the stagflation. And that's the worry right now in the United States with the U.S. Federal Reserve and Canada with the Bank of Canada is that inflation will get out of control and the central bank will have to raise interest rates more than what they're forecasting right now. They're forecasting half a percent June 1st in Canada, half a percent a month, maybe for the next three or four months in the United States. What happens if it doesn't put a lid on inflation and the economy stagnates? while inflation keeps up and interest rates keep going up. Yeah, and that's the big debate. Uh, you know, so we, I, I think the Federal Reserve's been very clear we're going to get a half point in June and July. Then we'll sort of check out September, or at least people are hoping they will at that point. But another half point, the Fed's sort of hinting at there, if not declaring it outright. We, we've looked at a slow in retail sales, especially when you looked at ta- uh, uh, sorry, Target and Walmart. We've seen a slowing in the housing market. That seems definite now. I mean, the stats are coming in. So you've got those aspects slowing down, and yet you've got still my cost of living going up that's not an environment we i mean we had it in the 70s and we've had it before that it's not an environment you want to be in the central banks think they can get a handle on this well so did the central banks in the u.s and canada in the 80s and in 1990 1991 do you know what your mortgage is going to be do you know what car loans are going to be do you know the cost of money so it's a really delicate delicate balance a real tightrope that they're trying to walk to keep the economy going, but also raise interest rates enough to, to tampen down inflation. That remains to be seen, and that's why people are worried. And, you know, as you alluded to, hey, we can't afford interest rates to get anywhere near what the inflation rate is at this point. In Canada, 6.7. In the States, over 8. We can't afford that. So, yeah, you're right, Mike. Complete uh, balancing act. So, yeah, you can go tell your friends, stagflation. We'll have a lot more chance to talk about it. Let's hope it doesn't arrive. Let's hope economic growth can continue to be maintained. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Why? Because James Thorne, who's the chief market strategist, Wellington Alta's private wealth, always has an ability to, first of all, see the big picture and then drill down for you and I as to what it means to us and maybe what we should do in the investment side of things. So, first off, thanks for having me. Uh, How I try to uh, rationalize this crazy, crazy period of time is I anchor off of the 1940s post-World War II. And in 46, 47, 48, we had inflation of plus 10%, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the Fed could not raise rates because debt to GDP was 135%. Well, today we have debt to GDP of 140%, right? When Volcker went crazy in the 1970s, debt to GDP was down below 40%. So it took a couple of decades to work that debt off, right? So so my view has always been that you're right, absolutely right, and I've written about this, is, look, they can't do anything about inflation. They shouldn't try to do anything about inflation. Let the markets, higher prices will lead, you know, will deal with, will affect the, the market. Let the market adjust. Long-term inflationary expectations are well anchored. They should not be raising interest rates right now. And the real question that we have to ask ourselves, and one of the alternatives of reason why they're doing is, is because we've made inflation a political hot potato within a midterm election year. 
And if you build it around that context, you know, and Powell just got reaffirmed, uh, reelected, but it was along party lines. And, you know, maybe what we've got here, Mike, is we're, 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 we're watching a civil war go on for the control of central banks around the world. Right. And, you know, rightly so. Some people are upset that that maybe, you know, in, you know, um, income inequality and in green, the green agenda should not be a, a policy objective of the central banks and they should leave that to our elected officials. But something is going on and it doesn't add up. Right. And I agree with you. Well, it's funny. I, I was read the Bank of Canada's annual statement and it, it was if it wasn't serious, it would be laughable. So here we are in this inflation that's sort of 30-year, 35-year highs. It's killing about half of the Canadian population who in consistent polls are telling us, hey, I can't make ends meet like this, or I'm without 100 bucks at the end of the month or 200 bucks." And, you know, presto, government, the cost of government still goes up, whether you're talking Canada pension plan or carbon taxes or whatever. And yet in that annual statement, they literally mentioned the word uh, climate change 78 times and they mention inflation 36 times. I'm saying, you know what? We can have a wonderful discussion about the importance of climate change, but today, no, inflation's a bigger problem. So I, I think that bodes ill, actually, for going forward. And, and I, I'm, I quote Nishi, right? There are no facts, there's only interpretations, right? Um, if you go back to the data that's at the Fed to 1200s, right, and, and you look at inflation, there's inflation spikes. And we go like this. We go from inflation to a deflation. Deflationary pressures are still very strong, right? I mean, I don't know how long you and I have known each other where we talk about every company is going to be a tech company, right? So technology is deflationary. Debt to GDP is deflationary. Demographics are deflationary. And yet we have an inflation spike that is that is generational because of what's happening with with the, the green movement what's happening with covid and, 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 and what's happening with war in Europe. Right. So the question is, is is can policy do anything about it? I am in the firm camp. No, it can't. I mean, I mean, we're looking at the PC elect uh, the leadership. Um, uh, race. And, you know, when Jean Charest was uh, a premier of Quebec, he he wouldn't allow, you know, drilling for shale oil. Like the shale, shale is all over the place. Shale's in the United Kingdom. It's in Quebec. It's in New York State. This is not about not having the resources. This is about policy decisions that we've made for over decades. And to think that raising rates 3% is going to solve this problem is, is naive. It's absolutely naive and it borders on lunacy, actually. Uh, and the thing that kills me is that, uh, again, so many of the things that I've talked about on Money Talks, but, uh, you know, one of the bottom line I always say is bad policy impacts the vulnerable. Bad policy impacts the poor. You know, and uh, I made a comment earlier in the show to start it off just saying, let's be clear. The people who are in Davos this past week are not impacted whether gas prices go up by 50% tomorrow or food prices. And that's been one of the big problems. Some of the COVID policies, you know, uh, as we made that, I was happy to hear that distinction being made. Laptop class versus, you know, like I wasn't impacted by COVID financially. You know, I could work from home easily. Uh, and yet I was certainly sensitive to those people who didn't have that advantage, who had far more uncertainty uh, financially. So I think this comes to the same sort of problem here is that uh, the policies, mistakes that I see being made, and you just alluded to the energy side of things, Look who it hurts. And that's what just kills me here. 
Yes. And so you really have to add when, when, when you look at in it, the data, that's where I always go back to this. This isn't about facts, right? You think about, okay, you hear, you hear very smart people say the inflation that we're dealing with now is caused by wage growth. No, it's, it's not about bad policy. It's a, so you go to the Atlanta Fed wage tracker and you look at who's got the wage growth. Well, it's non-whites with no education that work in the service industry that before COVID lived below the poverty level with their wages. So you're telling me that the lowest cohort of people actually have got wage growth. And those are the people that are causing the inflation, really. And you yeah. want me to believe that. Right. You want me to believe. And, and so you get to the point where, you know, you get frustrated when you read the because they don't I don't think they expect us to read the reports or read the speeches or read the minutes. But when you do, you like you shake your head, don't you? Right. And and so so I, I would advocate people we're in such a unique period of time, but yet it's not right. We go through every 80 years. We go through this period of adjustment. Right. And so we need to come up with policies that's going to help us transition to green, right? We need to have rational policies, right? Um, we don't have pipelines in this country, right? Well, one of the, sorry, I was going to say one of the things that's, uh, and I've said this all along, people, uh, regular listeners know this. I mean, the biggest batch of hate mail I ever got was saying, we don't have the copper, we don't have the cobalt, we don't have the pipelines, we don't have any infrastructure. For 20 years of talking about the transition to renewable, we're still at step one. And I, I still believe that. We're literally so, uh, I could give a ton of stats on that. And the lack of realism is just astounding on there. But the punishment is immediate. Like we're feeling it now for the first time. We're actually a feel, uh, feeling this kind of a problem. So, yeah, I, I just... I'm, I'm at a loss and I have a lack of confidence, but let's talk about how that translates to the investment markets because uh, I've been long-term uh, long bullish on commodities, but I'm wondering if we're about to get a soft period if those interest rates are high enough to slow the economy. So, so you know, you, we, it's funny. So you, we have been talking about commodities for so long. It was, and, 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 and I, it, you, you, it was an echo chamber there for a while. No one was listening to us, right? Mm -hmm. Now I'm getting calls and people are asking me, is it time to buy commodities? And I'm sitting there saying no. And the reason why is, and these, this is data, right? So, so, so a little bit nuanced. When inflation surprises to the upside, to our expectations, so nobody expects inflation and then surprises to the upside, we have a period where commodities outperform excessively in your client's portfolio. And we're only talking about clients, we're just talking portfolio. That period of time is over, right? So the period of time where the only game in town is oil, is nat gas, it's uranium, it's what is over. So that's not to say you wanna hold it in your portfolio. It still will do fine. It's, this is a secular theme. So, so really what it comes down to is when you look at where we are and you're starting to see the credit market say inflation is not a problem. The 30, the 10 year two weeks ago in the United States was 320. It's now 270. So the credit market is now signaling that it's no longer inflation is going to be the problem, it's growth. So now let's go back, go into the, when everybody's gonna freak out when we're talking about commodities, let's go back to the other one, the one we talked about before. 
Every company is going to become a technology company. It's going to be innovation. This is how we're going to do it. And that is exactly Bitcoin, blockchain, you know, uh, 3D printing, the whole kit and caboodle. That is what's happening. If you stand back and look at what the market is doing right now, interest rates are coming down and you're seeing flows of money going into that theme because that is the standard playbook, right? Is when the economy slows and prices come off the boil and people feel that the Fed understands what's going on and they're going to pivot and follow the credit market, you buy what's called long duration equity, which is technology. Right. And now if we argue, you'll sit there and go, well, is it really long durations? What I sit there and go, look at the yield on the 30 year bond, 20 year bond and 10 year bond. You do not listen to me. You listen to the credit market and the credit market is yelling at you, yelling at you that now after these stocks are down 60, 70 percent to buy long duration assets because we're going to in a slow growth environment. What works? Those companies that have secular growth behind it. What is the, one of the largest secular growth themes that you and I have been talking about since we've known each other? The move from analog to digital. So ignore the noise, look at the credit market, and realize that the playbook that I just said to you is standard for macro portfolio managers around the world. And that's what we're seeing, observing real time. Let me ask... Uh... You know, when we we go through a period and it's a bubbly period, you know, you sort of in a real estate bull market, you buy every house and it doesn't matter. You know, I, uh, you know, in a stock market like we had, especially in the tech side, buy anything. Don't worry about valuation. So we've had a repricing of performance. You know, we have several companies down dramatically who actually have performed better than they have over the last two or three years. But we're not paying for sales or we're not paying, you know, for earnings. So. I would uh, let me ask you, do I have to be a far more selective then if I'm looking to ride that wave, as you say, once we sort of bottom out and that, you know, that growth scenario comes back and you say long term duration to me, I'm hearing I better stick to quality tech where we got into frothy tech before. Right. So this is all about emotion and denial, right? <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to use I benchmark off the of 2004 and 2009. So. So first off, what did we get? We got interest rates coming down. And then what did we get last week and early this week? Companies coming in, warning, but yet going up. So the selling has exhausted. Now, Michael, I would expect like in 09 and 04 that the majority of investors will be will completely disagree with the movement that we're going to uh, observe in the market, just like they did in 09 and 04. And, we're, and it's going to be a phonetic rally. People are going to not participate in it. And let's just say, hypothetically, the S&P goes from 4,000 to 4,800 by between now and Labor Day. Okay? And then everybody gets in who's defensive, right? And they all look at each other and they go, oh, my gosh, we sold at the bottom. It's now up. The market's flat. And then to your point, we can't buy Microsoft because Microsoft's had a fantastic rally. Oracle's had a fantastic rally. You know, everything that is the high quality has moved. We need performance. Where do we go? And typically what happens is we get a phase called the dash for trash. 
where people go in and buy the stuff that hasn't moved, that maybe doesn't have the fundamentals for the long term. But this gets emotional. This gets to people making decisions because if they don't get performance, they have to take their kids out of private school. They have to sell their home. Forget about fundamentals. This is emotional, and this is about determining and saving your job. And so I would expect, would not be surprised at that. And then what I think we need to do is once we get to the other side of the mountain, then we really have to ask ourselves, what does this look like? You know, what portfolio, what commodities do we want in our portfolio? Because what you asked me about technology, it goes the same for commodities. Not every commodity company is going to, going to get uh, be the ones you want. If you think that you're going to get a premium valuation for a commodity a, that it, company that has stranded assets in the middle of Canada that cannot get their commodity to Europe, the benefit from the price differential, you're dreaming, right? You're going to have to invest in a, a natural gas company in Pennsylvania or Louisiana or Texas. So the point that you're making is is, is a profound point for everything that as we get more and more knowledgeable about it, it becomes much more nuanced. It becomes the winners and losers get uh, bifurcated because it's just not, oh, buy oil. No, it's you got to buy oil that can get their they can get their oil to the United States or to Europe. And so you're absolutely right in what you're saying, but never underestimate the silliness that can happen. When they, the, the traditional money managers have missed the trade and they need to generate performance to keep their jobs, which we would expect to see in the fourth quarter of this year, the typical dash for trash trade. <laughs> I love that phrase, by the way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it by my computer so I don't join the dash for ca- uh, <laughs> trash, I mean. Uh, let me come back to So are the pivotal things that you're going to be watching going forward here? I mean, Maybe it sounds obvious, but you'll be watching the bond market and see how they're reacting. I mean, let's keep it. Let let me back up just one more thing. One of the things we should appreciate, I think, uh, about when central banks talk is it's a publicity thing. You know, it's a marketing thing. As you have said and written before, when they first started, they said, look, this is the rate rising going on right now. It's talk. You know, they're trying to talk their book. Also, you're never going to get them. I mean, going back. And they should be criticized for talking transitory for all those months. But at the same time, there's no way they were going to say, you know what? I think we're getting 8% in inflation in just about six. You know, they can't do that because of the market reactions, especially in the credit markets. So, you know, you always take what a central banker says with a big grain of salt. But let's talk about what you'll be looking at going forward here, like to sort of gauge the temperature of all the markets. So, so what we're going to get is going back to the post-World War II, and that's my roadmap, okay? So so we're going to get a, and it started already, we're going to get a period of time where people are going to realize that the Fed cannot and the Bank of Canada can't raise rates because of the level, the amount of debt and the damage it's going to do. And we're starting to see that right now. So we're going to be in a period of time where fiscal policy takes the lead in terms of managing the business cycle. And we're already starting to see echoes of or, or, or glimpses of that with checks being handed out to people because of inflation, right? That is, that is, that is, that is a canary in the coal mine that is saying that fiscal policy is going to take the lead. However, having said that, 
Go back and let's look at the, if you go post-World War II, what do you have? You have massive technological ev- uh, 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 evolution coming into the economy and the market. We have that. We have the reoccurrence or the introduction of the Cold War, right? We have that now. It was, it was the Korean War. It was the Cold War, you know, Stalin going into, going into to Berlin. You had China going, to, going communist. You had that. You had the concern about World War III. You had the concern about a nuclear war. And yet, between 1945 and 1965, the market went up 700%. And so I would suggest you we're in the same phrase where we've got the demographics, which are the millennials in the younger generation, are in family formation years. This is no different than that period of time or in the 1990s. If they don't blow this thing up, which is a big if, and I still, I don't think they will, because I do, I don't think that, that they understand the ramifications. Michael, they would not have invoked it, invoked Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. That is such a unique thing that they did to blow this thing up by raising rates too much. So what I would do is sit there and go, once we get the, the, the smoke clears, it's going to be those two things that we had together. We have the every company is going to become digital, the blockchain, crypto, and then over here you're going to have commodities, right? And you're going to have what are the commodities going to be? All of these are going to be nuanced. That's what your portfolio is going to look like. They're not going to raise rates. We're going to have slow growth, a little bit high inflation, and we're going to do exactly what we did out of World War II. We're going to attempt to grow our way out of this mound of debt, and it took decades. That's what the, That's my roadmap. James Thorne is Chief Market Strategist, Wellington Altus of Private Wealth. Jim, always love getting a chance to chat and hear your insights. Much appreciated. Thanks, guys. Be safe. Time now for the quote of the week. I'm sure many of you recall George Carlin, very successful stand-up comedian. Uh, and I also have a huge acting resume, too. But his comedy was biting and acerbic as it focused on, you know, basically all aspects of society. I can't help but think that he wouldn't be allowed on the air today with some of his kind of commentary in this kind of a woke, politically correct environment. And his take on politics would especially be unpopular in establishment circles, which brings me to the quote of the week, more relevant than ever, in quotes. Governments don't want a population capable of critical thinking. They want obedient workers, people just smart enough to run the machines and just dumb enough to passively accept their situation. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, state houses, city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets, and they own all the big media companies. So they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. End of quote. That is certainly something to consider. I know, depending on your point of view, maybe your political affiliations, but I still think that's great food for thought. So much more coming your way, including Ozzy and Victor. Uh, uh, the, the list is a long one and a great Goofy Award, so glad you're with us. One of the challenges, I think, for all of us right now is to appreciate to the degree to which the environment in which we are making our financial decisions have changed. I mean, we've come from this long-term easy money environment, and we've had plenty of warning very clearly from our central banks that that era is over, thanks, of course, to the inflation that 
that pumping the system full of money sort of resulted in, plus other things, pumping that system full of money while you've got a supply chain problem is not a good idea. You've got oil prices completely separate from that. You've got refinery problems. You've got food problems. But the bottom line is the only tool in the toolbox of the central banks is to raise uh, interest rates. But that has a profound impact also in the real estate market, obviously, and, of course, on the mortgage market. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. Now, Ozzy, you've been telling us, and the data now starts, uh, you know, completely supports it, that you were starting to worry that the top was in in the first week of February. We chronicled it all the way through. I'm looking at the latest stats, especially out of the states where it's pretty clear cut, that it looks like, yes, we are certainly in a period that's far slower than it was just even a month ago or two months ago. Which in the United States, uh, for instance, Miami, the hotbed is now 25% fewer sales. So Seattle is down. And of course, the Canadian Real Estate Association says we're down 25%. In Surrey, for single family homes, we're down 37%. So sales are down. I was talking to Dustin Woodhouse, who's the president of Mortgage Architects, and he's probably the hardest working president I've ever met. He's a great guy. He says we're now seeing a lot more offers. Uh, the offers are still coming in, but they're coming with conditions. So we're getting back to a more normal environment. And I think that's the key. What you've just said there is that, I mean, you know, as you 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 chronicled well, you know, and and I know I've got uh, my daughters in the real estate business. Uh, you know, I'm well aware of the, you know, people had to bid above offer for sure, but you're amongst 27 other people who are doing that. So the tendency was to have, hey, I've got a no subject offer. I'll give you my firstborn. Can I have the place at 300 grand over what you just asked? Yeah. And I think it's important, though, to evaluate that that environment has changed. And, and I want you to elaborate on what you've just said there. That changes maybe how I approach making a bid. Yeah, and it's, just, and it's normal. It is not normal to write a full price offer without having done an inspection, without having even a mortgage approved. That's not normal. But the other thing is that, uh, that Dustin says, well, look, we're still getting these offers that are subject-free, that don't need to be subject-free. And he calls this an odd behavior. And, of course, the, re the reality is that the realtor uh, just makes it easy. He, he knows the buyer is probably still thinking of yesteryear where you had to offer over asking and says, let's make it subject free when you don't really need to. Well, one of the things that jumps out at me, and I want you to uh, give me a few more examples, but I know you've been talking about this is, hey, you know, a lot of people started to buy properties almost sight unseen. Now, there are examples where that actually happened, but I meant almost sight and, and certainly inspection free. So what you're saying is if we go back to more normal conditions, people should make note of that, that, hey, you can make an offer subject to inspection as an example. Yeah, and the thing is, of course, we also underlisted always, so the, the value was really 600, but we know buyers are now hanging around on the internet and they know in the buildings units sold at, at 600. Well, the listing is underlisted at 550 to attract 25 offers. Those things are all on the way out because we get into a more normal condition. So as a buyer, I would certainly try to get an, a, a subject to a financing subject to inspection in, as a minimum. Um, the whole idea is that you, uh, you want to be able to have a negotiation that is fair on both sides. Let me come back to the financing part. Uh, again, I'm applying for a mortgage. Is there something there that's changed a little bit too? I mean, I know we've got, for example, you know, that stress test feels like it's way up to me over the last few months, you know, what you have to qualify under. Are there other things, though, around that actual uh, mortgage process? Like you just you said just a moment ago, 
hey, you can make an offer subject to financing, as an example. Yeah, and the other thing is, and I want to come back to the stress test in a minute, but the appraiser, we, we need an appraisal. And the law is that appraisal of a property means that the appraiser compares recent sales of similar properties. Well, on the way up, generally, you get the appraisal at the price that the offer was written on. But on the way down, quite often, you get an appraisal that is called light, light on what it should be. So you paid 700, the appraisal comes in at 670. So you want to get that appraisal done as soon as possible. So you have to know whether you have to come up with more money and you want to stay to the market value as, as close as possible. So just you, you've got to look and sit down with a qualified mortgage broker. Not all mortgage brokers are the same. And some of them have some innovative ideas that you should ask for. Okay, I, I'm not letting you go without uh, coming up on something else you said. You got a little tip for us, because as you know, I've been concerned about people qualifying under the stress test, because obviously that's a major jump we've seen in what uh, qualifies somebody when you're starting to talk over 6%, for goodness sakes. But you said you got a little something that might help me out. Yeah, the, the, it's, a, it's a stress test is for fixed mortgages now at 6.19, and say 6.25%. But the stress test for variable rates are five and a quarter. So I'm not saying you should do anything that you not, don't ought to do. But with an innovative broker, you could certainly apply for a variable rate where the stress test is five and a quarter. And down the road, lock in at a, at a longer term rate, uh, fixed rate. And then you have qualified the mortgage at five and a quarter rather than six and a quarter. So again, it would include more people, as you just said, basically a full percentage point difference. If I'm qualifying for a five-year fixed or I'm qualifying for the variable rate, hey, good news on that. Just a little tip. That's what Ozzy does. He lives the real estate market. He breathes the real estate market. Actually, if I cut him, a condo would come out instead of blood. <laughs> Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. And just remember something in, in this world. My mother always used to say, the older you get, the better you get, unless you're a banana. <laughs> you know, no one's actually said that about me, though, also. Ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca with Ozzy Jurek. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, sometimes these things come out of nowhere for me. And in this case, I was reading the National Post. And it was interesting because Jamil Giovanni asked, where is the outrage over the Black Lives Matter's finances? I mean, there was a financial audit. I was aware of that, but it's a great question. Where is it? Maybe it's because, though, the media donors aren't interested, but also maybe because most people aren't aware of the findings that prompt the Charity Watch executive director, Lori Styron, to state, in quotes, I have never witnessed a lack of governance on this scale in my nearly 20 years as a charity watchdog. I mean, there was absolutely no independent oversight of the spending. Decisions were made by a single person, BLM co-founder Patrice Coolers, who was not shy about handing out money to family and friends, but let alone, and this is where it really started, a secret purchase of a $6 million U.S. mansion in Los Angeles. Now, they raised $90 million U.S. dollars. So you'd think there'd be some sort of formal oversight, but apparently there wasn't. And by the way, investigations revealed that Black Lives Matter purchased multi-mansions in the U.S. Again, no independent oversight. And that includes Canada. This is a Canadian connection that the Washington Examiner reports Black Lives Matter's Canada, whose board included Cooler's husband at the time. Well, they received the U.S. equivalent of $8.1 million Canadian dollars. Why? Well, to buy a mansion in Toronto. 
The BLM Canada's request for funds took less than a month to be approved. Well, maybe that's not a surprise, given there's only one person making the decisions. But Charity Watch states, the concern here is that an $8 million financial decision was made involving a related party with no independent oversight of the transaction. But as the New York Post reports, uh, questionable uh, the questionable financial transactions to related parties didn't end there. For example, Damon Turner, now that's the father of Cooler's only child. Well, he got paid 969,459 US dollars to his art firm called Trap Heels. I mean, no one's received a satisfying answer as to what BLM actually received in return. Also, a company owned by Cooler's brother, he's a graffiti artist, Paul Coolers, received $840,993 for professional security services. I mean, there's more examples. Coolers resigned, by the way, of BLM as executive director in May 2021. Why? Because there was such intense criticism of her personal real estate purchases. In fact, there is a documentary being prepared right now about these financial transactions. But I want to come back to that question posed by the National Post, Jamel uh, Giovanni. He said, where's the outrage on BLM finances? Well, Come on, because surely this isn't what donors thought the money would be spent on, multiple mansions, but there really has been very little blowback, very little coverage. So what gives? Well, for that, I'm going to go back to a study that was released in November 2020. It was by Harvard and MIT, published on Nature.com. But here's the thing. It concluded that people care more about the reputational value of giving than the actual results. In quotes, people are inclined to give in ways that are reputationally lucrative. End of quote. Well, that's another way of saying chalk one up for the virtue signalers. Some people are more interested in looking to be doing good than actually doing good. As I say, a new documentary coming out about BLM finances, and I think it'll be welcome. I always love the opportunity to close off the show by going live to the trading desk and Victor Adair. Why? Because Victor's been around these markets 40 plus years. And that's the kind of perspective I think helps in sort of navigating today's markets. I'm going to start with a couple of things here, Vic. One of the things that, and you mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth repeating that there's the market anticipates. So it's interesting when the Federal Reserve started to go hawkish and they did have the 50 point move and they said there's going to be another one July. So June, July and September, I kind of off the top of my head. Well, the markets didn't wait for that. They went way ahead and now they're sort of backtracking a bit. So I want a quick comment on that when you look at the interest rate thing, because it seems to be dominating so many other markets. Well, certainly the, the market started to sniff out that the Fed was going to need to tighten way back uh, late last year. When the Fed was still talking transitory, the market was taking forward rates higher. Well, as often happens, when a trend gets going, it runs maybe too far and then it has a correction. But it seems like the term is peak tightening. And uh, it looks like that happened earlier this month when the market uh, took the, oh, the Fed's going to tighten a little too far and the market has backed off. For instance, the 10-year the yield on the Treasury got out to about 3.2%. It's now back to about 2.8%. The same sort of thing has happened in the short end of the market. The market has been reducing its expectations as to just how nasty the Fed's going to be. 
and I don't want to oversimplify. I mean, it's difficult not to, though, when you don't have enough time. And these are sophisticated uh, concepts and subjects. But let's talk about the market, too. That, I mean, you get the back off in interest rates, as you say, and then the market has its rally. And, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to that rally, but I, I think they are related. Yeah, certainly. Well, related is one of my key words here. I love to look at how one market is doing relative to another. We call that an intermarket analysis, and that's kind of a backbone of, of macro analysis. But let's go this way. A week ago, you and I were talking, and the major U.S. stock indices had been down for seven, or in the case of the Dow, eight consecutive weeks. The, the sentiment in the market was just extremely bearish. You know, it was like, we're never going to see daylight again. And then this week, we've got the Dow is up about two and a half thousand points from the low we made Friday of last week. So, like, what happened? No. So the market got went too far on the downside with all kinds of bad news. And there was good reason to be bearish. I mean, you can just you can make a list. I'll, I'll leave that to you. But what I trade off of a lot is, is sentiment. And as we we're saying last week, the, the sentiment was so bearish that the market was setting up for a bit of a rally. And I think the thing that was the trigger for the rally, not only in the stock market, but in the currency market, was this realization that the market had overdone it in terms of uh, trying to price in how aggressive the Fed was going to be. Yeah, another thing that people should be aware of, though, is a lot of people made money on the downside. A lot of people were playing that market to go down, and they did exceptionally well in a short period of time. And so I'm not surprised that, it, you know, maybe they needed an excuse, but they got one. And all of a sudden, they start buying stocks to cancel out their short, what's called a short position. They're playing the market to go down. The way you get out of that position is to buy stocks and, and level it out. So I, I see some of that happening, too. Well, what happened in, uh, I guess it was mid-March, uh, we had what I call a bear market rally. It looks like we've had another one here. Historically, when a market is in a longer-term bear phase, in other words, it's trending lower, you'll have these nasty, very quick and vicious bear market rallies. And certainly, there's nothing that scares a per person who's short a stock more than to see the stock is, is really starting to jump up. They don't decide to, to, well, maybe I'll wait a couple of days. They phone their broker and they say, get me the hell out of this. You know, So the, the short covering has been aggressive for sure. Uh, the other thing is, of course, and I know we say it all the time, and it bears repeating all the time. What's your time frame? You know, I, you know when people ask me a questions, I've got to know, uh, obviously, it's what's your risk you're willing to tolerate too, but what's your time frame? Are you asking me a, a three-year question or are you asking me a, a three-day question? And so I, I look at that, and I think it's important for people to listen to advice in that regard and take action in that regard. Uh, but I'm, I'm still fascinated when I look at uh, things like the U.S. dollar dropping off its high. As a trader, you're, you're paying attention, you know, uh, or, or energy prices. I mean, at some point, crude's going to back off, but it won't change my long-term structural problem view. You know, Mike, I think paying attention to your time frame is probably the number one risk management rule that I have. Uh, if I have a view that, you know, somewhere over the next couple of years, things are going to be such and such, that that is absolutely useless information to me on what I'm going to do this week. You know, it, it, as a matter of fact, it's probably dangerous information, not, not, worse than useless. 
Uh, to come to the U.S. dollar, uh, it, it had a heck of a run. We made the low back in January of last year, uh, 2021. We made the low of the day. The mob stormed the Capitol building in Washington. I, I wrote about that many times in my blog. And yet here two weeks ago, we had the U.S. dollar index at a 20-year high. And as you and I have talked so many times, capital come to America for safety and for opportunity. Well, the opportunity was the Fed was going to be way more aggressive, at least in the market's view, than any other central banks. The interest rates were going to be higher and so on. So capital had that much more reason to come to America. And now with this repricing or rethinking about, hey, did we get too aggressive in, in pricing what the Fed's going to do? The U.S. dollar has backed off here about 4% from the highs we made uh, two weeks ago. Let me backtrack just for a minute here. Uh, one of the things that, of course, it's an old adage, adage is don't fight the Fed. And uh, in other words, you know, if the Fed was, uh, and we said that, we were very clear about that going back a couple of years saying, well, the Federal Reserve is telling us, and I remember it was the weekend, I'm trying to think, uh, March 21st on a Saturday, 2020. Can you be impressed by that, that I've actually got the date right? But Ma uh, March 21st, 2020, and uh, I, I'm proud to say on this show, we said the market low is in, and it was Monday. Why? Because the Federal Reserve says we're going to do everything we can to support this market. And you know what? They did, and it was more than I even imagined that they'd do, you know, $5 trillion. Okay, but we're now in a reverse situation. So I, I'll buy stocks, you know, when the Federal Reserve is saying money's going easy. But now the Federal Reserve's made clear, and it depends on the degree, as we had described earlier, Maybe it's not so easy coming forward. That's the one thing. It looks like a change in the environment, a for sure change in the environment. That's why I'm not a, a bottom fisher as an investor, not as a trader, but as an investor, because I think it's a very different environment here. Yeah, no, I'm a trader. I started, I started buying the stock market here or trying to buy it over the last two or three weeks, and I was wrong. And in my game, I'll say uh, being early is the same thing as being wrong. So I took small losses. This week, I was long the stock market, paid off, like I recovered the money I lost last week and the week before, and, and then some. But that's from a trading perspective. And I've also traded out of my position. And one of the reasons is I was surprised at how low the volumes have been this week, given the dramatic surge. I just said that the Dow is up 2,500 points on kind of so-so volume. Uh, okay, this... This looks like, a, as David Rosenberg would say, you want to rent this rally, not buy it. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Now, one aspect to keep in mind about high gas and diesel prices is that there's a large and powerful contingent in the climate change lobby, including politicians, many in the media, public education, hope that prices actually go higher. And the devastating impact, like on the poor, the vulnerable, or the 193 million people living on the edge of starvation, is simply collateral damage. It's noteworthy that I've yet to see anyone in the climate contingency, including in our own governments, acknowledge the fallout from the vilification of fossil fuels and their ill-conceived net-zero demand to end the use without any realistic timeline for the transition to renewables, let alone a plan. I mean, there's no plan. Much like the same blind spot that never acknowledged the importance, let alone your replacement, of petroleum-based products, far beyond gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. On Money Talks, we've chronicled for over a year the immediate and direct impact of higher natural gas prices 
on fertilizer. Well, now we've heard about it. This week, we got a stat saying fertilizer usage is down 30%. That's bad news in capital letters because crop yields will go down. And that further takes us down the road of uh, food crisis. Now, here's the thing. I'm confused. The food crisis starvation wave was either a goal of the academics who pushed for divestment, the school boards who egg students on to join Greta Thunberg's ill-informed push to end the use of fossil fuels immediately. you got groups like Extinction Rebellion. Or the city councils who jumped on board along with provincial and federal politicians. Were they really that ill-informed, intellectually lazy, and ignorant of the energy system and the importance of petroleum that they didn't know that would be the fallout? Or were they fully aware of the devastation their policies would cause. As I say, especially for the poor in Western society society and the highly vulnerable emerging markets. Are they just collateral damage and the great cause of climate change? But it brings me to my goofy award. You may have caught on Thursday, UK announces a windfall tax of 25% on UK oil companies, on their profits. 25% windfall profit tax. The same idea, by the way, is being floated in the U.S. And in Canada, the NDP is always in favor of higher taxes on profits, both on individuals and business. But the Liberals have already implemented a windfall tax on banks and insurance companies. So not a stretch there. So let's review. Governments in the Western world, led by the U.K., who, by the way, begged coal miners to increase production last October to replace the failed wind and solar energy production. And you got the U.S., who begged Venezuela and Iran to increase production along with OPEC Plus, but now they're pushing to raise taxes on any domestic company that does increase production? I mean, it's head-shaking. It's kind of like, if you want to add to the comic relief, the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rushi Senak, says the new UK oil windfall tax will be phased out, in quotes, when profits return to normal. Really? Well, what's normal? The industry average, or are we going company-specific, or is it earnings-per-share average? Or the average of what they made in 2015 right through to 2020 when crude prices were so low? I mean, idiotic doesn't do this justice, given it's a fact that if you want less of something, then you raise taxes. It's a tried-and-true method. And by the way, governments clearly understand that concept. That's why they favor a carbon tax, which raises prices to discourage consumption. The fact is, you want less supply, then make it less attractive to produce it by raising taxes on profits. And you know what? There's not an objective economist who disagrees. In fact, I suspect even the ones on the political left payroll would agree with that. By the way, this is the same stupidity slash idiocy that continues with the decommissioning of nuclear power in places like Germany, Michigan, California. And they don't have adequate replacement, although eventually they will. And you know what's happened in the past? It's almost always been replaced by fossil fuels. Right now, Germany's ramping up coal production to replace the three nuclear plants they decommissioned last uh, December. They've got three more being decommissioned this December. Hmm, Think about that green agenda. It replaces zero-emission nuclear power with the most emissions-intensive fossil fuel. Increasingly, so many of the stories we cover come with this big headline, you can't make this stuff up. And a final point quickly again, who, this is a global market. When you're talking about coal prices, you're talking about natural gas, you're talking about uh, oil. It's a global price. Who can least afford to pay it? Of course, it's the vulnerable once again. That's just one more aspect they refuse to acknowledge. 
But as I said from the outset, you can decide whether that's out of ignorance or by design. That's all the time we have this week. I hope you go out and have an absolutely terrific weekend. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.